Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Hello, I'm David Myers, and I'm delighted to welcome our listeners back to the second season of Then and Now, featuring conversations that bring much-needed historical perspective to key issues of the day. We're privileged to welcome as our first guest this season the 37th governor of the state of California, the Honorable Gray Davis. Gray Davis is one of the most experienced political figures in California state history. He served as state assembly person, state controller, lieutenant governor, and governor, a position to which he was elected twice. In the course of his time in public life, he was known for his command of complex policy issues and remains one of the keenest observers of state politics and policy around. Gray Davis also was the only governor in state history to be recalled, which gives him particular insight into the current effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom, which will be decided in a few short weeks. We're delighted to have Governor Davis with us to help us understand how we got where we are. Thank you, Governor Davis. My pleasure, David. So I imagine it's a busy time for you. Um, Maybe we'll just begin by asking, um, in light of your extraordinary experience in in state government, how did you get into public service? What drew you into public service? And I suppose I asked that, mindful of um, an audience of younger people out there who are... um, shocked by the state of toxicity of public discourse today. So how did you get involved and what would you say to someone who was considering a career in public service? Well, uh, my heart goes out to these young people. And if it's any comfort, I grew up in a similar era where people were supposed to work together. My mother said, uh, you know, you've had some advantages, son, but uh, in God's eyes, we're all the same. He loves us all. And we think you should act that way. Just, Just be good to other people. Uh, so they they were not interested in seeing me go into politics necessarily, and they happened to be Republicans, although not not active Republicans. Kind of in the day we would call them Rockefeller Republicans, because I, I grew up in New York. Uh, but uh, that was probably uh, if I have to attribute the credit to anyone, it was probably them. Just watch out for other people, be careful, do the right thing, uh, and uh, work hard. Uh, when I was in the Vietnam War uh, as as a captain. Uh, I began to see some of the inequities in life uh, because it was my expectation that everyone was sort of doing their part. I was born in the 40s and grew up in the 40s and 50s, came to California in the mid 50s. uh, And I just thought everyone did their part. And I was in uh, ROTC at at Stanford uh, and uh, didn't think there would be much chance of, of a war breaking out by the time I finished law school, but one had. So I served. But I began to see that this war was really fought not just by people of my background, but people who are primarily minority uh, or from the South. And in a way, a, a small group of people was really shouldering the burden of uh, fighting that war. Now, this was before the end of the draft where everybody was subject to being a call to service. Things are different now. But um, those two uh, those two influences in my life, I think, kind of led me to politics. One, my mother saying, be charitable, be positive, be good to other people. Uh, and just my feeling very badly that the people who were in Vietnam uh, did not reflect 
the great swaths of people in the United States of America. So I want to just pick up on something you said um, at the outset of your remarks, um, uh, because we often think that what we're experiencing is unprecedented in human history. Um, you, you said something to the fact that things were toxic back then as well. I wonder if you could elaborate. Things were not toxic. We're not toxic. Uh, uh, Eisenhower was president in the fifties. Uh, 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 we just come out of World War Two. Uh, people were sort of, uh, you know, tired of war. Then they were getting back to normal life. People were working together. Uh, you know, America had been part of a great victory over uh, Germany and uh, Japan, uh, and there was uh, just a feeling that, you know, good things were possible. But we weren't quite ready, as John Kennedy said, to put a man on the moon yet. We were just coming back together, being positive. It was uh, Norman Rockwell was a famous uh, uh, person in the 50s. And he used to do these paintings where everybody was happy. That was sort of the era I grew up in. And did that, what was it like when you began to enter uh, electoral politics? Uh, did you encounter when you first ran for state assembly person or controller or lieutenant governor, did you, uh, uh, did that sense of the sort of the Rockwellian uh, calm and uh, largely for that matter, white America um, uh, appear different? Uh, did you feel like you entered into a different world, uh, a more rough and tumble world, uh, a world in which uh, there was a different sense of morality that was at work or did you feel that your first efforts in electoral office were really a carryover of that uh, uh, of that era of of uh, good sense and and decency? Well, I didn't run for uh, elective office till 1982, which is a long time from uh, when I first arrived in California. But I still felt, David, that people of both parties uh, came with goodwill and importantly felt they should solve problems. Uh, and most of the Republicans were sort of moderate Republicans. There were some conservative Republicans, but they were in the minority. So maybe not uh, quite the feeling I had in the 50s, but at least the feeling we all have a job to do. we got to work together. And in my early days, actually throughout my entire time as governor as well, uh, we had to get a two-thirds vote to pass a budget, even one where there was no tax increase. Uh, so there was a premium on working together and working things out. And we did that. But I would like to make one point. You left one thing out of my biography that's very important. I spent seven years as Jerry Brown's top aide. And I learned almost everything I learned about politics from him uh, from the late, uh, late 1974 uh, through uh, late uh, uh, 1981. What was he like as a mentor? What did you learn? He uh, is one of the smartest people I've ever met in politics. Um, he you know, a lot of people say with my background, I was the most experienced person running for governor. Well, maybe in terms of holding offices, but he spent every night with a father who was two, two term attorney general and a two term governor. And his and his family would talk about the politics of the day. So he got almost a daily tutorial uh, on how problems can be solved. And, uh, you know, he was the only governor to serve four terms. Much of what I learned about politics, I learned from him. And I have great respect for him. So that was a big part of my political education. Uh, and when I first ran for office, I was closely identified with Jerry Brown and still feel uh, so and feel very positive toward all the good work he did. Mm -hmm. 
So if we take the seven years you spent with him and then your experience as an assemblyman, a controller, a lieutenant governor, you do arrive um, in the governor's office with uh, a tremendous uh, amount of experience. You're elected in 1998 with nearly 60% of the vote. Um, you come in with huge favorability ratings and a large budget surplus. Um, when you add all of that together, um, you have, it seems to me, only uh, one place to go, um, which is down. Um, favorability ratings experience, a budget surplus. What was the mood when you assumed office? Um, and what was the political climate, both in the state and the country at that time? Well, remember, we were uh, in 1998. I was had the good fortune of having Bill Clinton spend a day with me and campaign for me. Uh, and he was going out of office in 2000. I took office in January of 1999. Actually, Vice President Al Gore was kind enough to come. Uh, and there was a feeling that positive things could happen uh, on, the, on the international front. There was a, th a feeling that even uh, something positive maybe worked out with the Middle East. Um, because Clinton worked hard to bring all the parties together. So there was a very, very good mood in the country. Now, uh, in 2021, things changed pretty dramatically. 9-11 happened. Uh, I was governor then. And I recall uh, the feeling in the country that we'd been attacked. Never This had only happened uh, in World War II in Hawaii. Uh, and we were going to war, uh, a war which we're just extricating ourselves from as we do this podcast. Uh, so things changed pretty, pretty dramatically then, and people got to be uh, more partisan, but not nearly as partisan as they are today. Mm -hmm. I was elected in 1998. Um, I followed 16 straight years of Republican governors. Governor Machen served two terms, Governor Wilson served two terms, and I was elected after that. And I, I did not enjoy a huge majority of Democrats. We might have had a point or two lead in the registration numbers uh, when I was elected uh, governor and maybe two or three points uh, going into the recall in 2003. But Republicans are much better about turning out in special elections. So it was basically an even electorate. Very different today, of course, there's four to five million more Democrats in the state than there are Republicans. Republicans are not the second largest party now, they're the third, independents being the second. Uh, so the environment has got more partisan and there are more uh, Democrats than there were Republicans. Uh, and the electorate uh, passed something about 2010, I want to say, that says you can pass a budget uh, with a majority vote. But if the budget is late, the legislature loses a day's pay for every day the budget is late. So that was less of an incentive now than then to work together with Republicans and work things out uh, uh, in a cooperative fashion, uh, because in those days you needed Republicans to pass the budget. Now you don't. I still think it's better to work with Republicans because then they're involved. They have something to do. Uh, my father told me once, he said, whoever invented a job should get a Nobel Prize because at the end of the day, you're so tired. All you want to do is go to bed. And the last thing you want to do is rebel against the government. Of course, if you don't have a job, you have all day to rebel against the government. So I think it's a it makes a lot of sense for Democrats to try and work with Republicans, uh, keep them involved in the process rather than uh, just ignoring them. So they have, can spend 100 percent of their time on mischief as opposed to helping solve the people's problems. Do you think the disparity in the number of uh, registered voters is a disincentive to uh, to engaging in that kind of bipartisan work? 
Yes, but again, coming back to my mother, we're all human beings. These these people got elected just like Democrats got elected. Uh, sure, they may have different views, but they do represent views that exist in this in this uh, state. So I think it's always good to try and get four or five, six Republican votes on a bill if you can. If you can't, okay, go ahead. You have the majority, uh, use it. But uh, I think we've gotten to a point where it's almost total disregard of the Republicans, which is you know, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, and I would not advise it uh, going forward. Okay. How do you narrate what happened in your first term? Um, how do you see um, sort of the movement from the heights of those first uh, days and, and, and weeks um, when you came in with uh, such an overwhelming um, uh, a de- degree of support to um, where you ended up at the end of your first term? Uh, well, several things happened, but let me just say at the outset, uh, some good things happened in the first two or three years, first couple of years in particular, uh, that I'm proud of. I ran on education, uh, and I believed uh, we wanted to encourage young people to think big. And almost every week I was governor, David, I was in an elementary or middle school or possibly a high school somewhere in this state. And all I was really doing was saying, you know, I know you guys can do good things. Uh, only one child can be best, but every child can get better. And in that process of getting better, they get wiser and smarter uh, and become hopefully productive citizens. Uh, they choose to have families, good parents, uh, and that's all a good thing. So I try to encourage uh, an incentive program where schools, uh, be they in Watts or Westwood, would earn money for their um, for themselves by by increasing their improvement. So didn't matter if you were the lowest scoring school in the state on standardized tests or, or the top, but if your your improvement from year to year was over a certain percentage, you'd get uh, a good chunk of money that the teachers, the principals, and the parents could decide how to spend. And that was a way of rewarding people uh, for uh, improving a young person's chances to be successful in life. So, but for the energy crisis that you faced, you might have been known as the education governor. Uh, you still are, but you encountered something else, uh, a major energy crisis. What, what did that look like? How, how early were you aware of what was unfolding? Well, first, uh, I became aware, first the bill passed two years before I became governor. I was lieutenant governor. Uh, governor Wilson was Republican. I had no role in the passage of the bill. But the bill passed without a dissenting vote. It was about this thick, uh, which told me nobody read it. Uh, Tom Hayden was a dissenting vote, the only dissenting vote in either house on a cleanup bill uh, afterwards. But basically, it said to the uh, utilities, take half of your generating capacity, the plants that produce electricity, and sell them to the energy companies. Those are Enron, Dynergy, Reliant. Enron was the leader of the pack. And they will sell it back to you. And the energy companies convinced us or not convinced me, but convinced the legislature that this would be the cheapest form of power. Turned out the energy companies, once they had the power, which uh, probably sold for a premium, but used to sell for about $35 an hour, so $35 a megawatt, so let's say $50 a megawatt to the uh, energy companies, they sold it back at $1,000 a megawatt or 2000 So they drove PG&E, the utility in the north, in bankruptcy. Edison was on the edge of bankruptcy. Um, and there was a meeting in Washington four days uh, before the end of Clinton's term uh, trying to get all of us to work things out. 
and that's when uh, these these uh, energy companies made this demand. Uh, and I had two Republicans and two Democrats with me, the majority and minority leaders uh, in both houses. And all five of us said, look, the ratepayers did not come to us and ask for deregulation. This was your idea. And you said it would reduce the cost of electricity. And it's just exploded. And it's all because of your market manipulation. Four days after that meeting, the lights went out in San Francisco. This is January 2001? Uh, yes. Uh, but just before, I think the lights went out one day after Bush became president, uh, and the meeting was three or four days before that. In any event, uh, this was, we didn't know that Enron caused that to happen, but four months after I left office, a video came out where Enron was asking the plant in Sir San Francisco to go down. There was a blackout in San Francisco, kind of Enron saying, uh, look, you politicians, uh, you did, we didn't like the way that meeting went in Washington, and this is what we're going to do. So, you know, if I'd had that, uh, if I'd had that uh, video, maybe the uh, recall would have turned out differently. I got forty-five percent of the vote. You have to get fifty percent. Uh, but be that as it may, I never imagined that Enron was actually breaking the law. But in fact, they were causing blackouts, manipulating the prices, uh, and there was a big article in the Chronicle. Uh, which we can send you, showing how beyond just doing blackouts, which are like in the lexicon of war, like a nuclear bomb, uh, they would manipulate the grid. So the grid thought that the people running the grid, the California ISO is its, is its acronym, thought there were too many electrons on the grid and they would give money to Enron to reduce the electrons. There were not too many electrons on the grid, but Enron was able to confuse, like a video game, confuse ISO into thinking there was, and they got paid for it. And there were several other schemes where they would take money out, take power out of the state, bring it back in, and that that uh, allowed them to not to operate under some price caps that the federal government eventually imposed at, at our request. Uh, so they were basically criminal enterprise, pure and simple. The CEO was convicted uh, and sent to prison for 24 years. The former CEO and chairman, Ken Lay, uh, convicted, mysteriously died a couple of years later. The CFO uh, pled guilty for seven years for hiding all the indebtedness Enron had. And about 12 other people either pled guilty or were convicted. So they were a criminal enterprise and they were responsible for the blackouts in California. We didn't know any of that during uh, the um, recall. And therefore, it was much harder to explain to people why, uh, why I was upset with the energy companies because they were not getting a bill, they being the ratepayers from the energy companies, they were getting a bill from Edison or LAWP or uh, PG&E up in Northern California. So that in a nutshell is uh, how the energy crisis came to be the mess it was. Right, it was also a very different political environment than when you were elected, as you alluded at the beginning. Um, we had, of course, Bush v. Gore uh, just prior to that, and then a number of months, a half a year later, uh, 9-11, um, all of which creates a very different political environment in which uh, the voter looks upon politicians. Cor correct. Uh, but the, um, you know, in California, uh, there's a lot of, there's some similarities between my recall and, and or differences. And one was uh, everyone understands the pandemic was not Gavin Newsom's doing. He, in my judgment, he's done a good job, deserves to be allowed to complete the term the voters elected him to serve. Uh, and 
a relatively easy message for him to communicate that this problem is worldwide, not limited to California. The energy crisis was limited to California, so people blame me. I'm not moaning and groaning, never did during the recall, uh, because I tell people for 111 years, the public has had power to have the first word and the last word on every issue. And they've had the power to recall an elected official, to repeal a law you pass, and to write a law of their own called an initiative. And if you don't like that, don't run for office in California. Run for office in some other state that doesn't have these three powers that belong to the people. Right. Well, we'll get to that in a minute about the wisdom of continuing with that uh, one particular instrumentality uh, of uh, the people, namely the ability to recall. But um, I'm wondering, were you completely taken by surprise uh, by the initiative to recall and then it's gaining momentum. And what actually was it like for you personally? I mean, there must have been an air of incredulity. Here you come in with this groundswell of support. You do good things in your first few years and you're kind of gobsmacked by 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 the uh, nefarious activities of of uh, of seemingly reputable uh, uh, corporate actors. Yeah. And it's important to remember uh a lot of the young people may not be aware of this, but there was a time when Enron was being fated as a great corporate entity, ranked seventh by capitalization. It turned out they were a criminal enterprise, pure and simple, losing money all around the planet, except in India and in California, where they were essentially stealing it from us. But they would have all these professors come from Harvard and Yale and UCLA and Berkeley and Stanford. And they'd have big lunches for them and give twenty-five dollars or $50,000 to their favorite charity. So every time I attacked uh, Enron, all these professors would attack me. Uh, so they were very good at public relations. Uh, they had President Clinton and President uh, Bush both thought Ken Lay was the most knowledgeable person on energy deregulation. That may have been the case, but he clearly was a crook and was convicted as such uh, and had no intention of serving the public interest. But what was it like for you? It was, it was, well, let me just say what happened. So I got reelected, as you know, in November 2002. And then I give my inaugural address sometime in January, a couple months later. And I hear later that uh, same month, January, there are people in the, in the Capitol talking about a recall. I mean, I just showed up for work. I mean, all the policy disputes presumably were settled in the, in the election, and I, and I won that election. Uh, so at first, I didn't take it seriously because there was nobody very prominent thinking of running for, for office. They did have problems, it turned out, uh, in gathering signatures. And a, and a congressman named Daryl Issa uh, put up a million five uh, in money and got them over the hump. But I wasn't too worried about him. So it wasn't until Arnold decided to get in the race that everything changed. And remember, there's nobody in this race even close to a celebrity uh, of Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, uh, stature back in 2003. He was just campaigned around the, around the world for the opening of uh, Terminator 2. It opened in July of 2003. He announced in August of 2003. The election was October 8th. And of course, he just played the same role he played in the Terminator. I, you know, I'll, I, I will fix this. Uh, and you know, people ate it up and there was just very little chance to be someone with that star power. I mean, this is California, mind you, and celebrity uh, is the coin of the realm here. We saw that even with Trump. Uh, so it became a much, much different situation once he 
uh, entered the race than it appeared to us prior to his entry. You know, you you as you report on this, uh, you seem accepting and philosophical rather than bitter. Would that be? Was that always the case? And 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 how did you come to that? Uh, and I want to tell you the story. So I'm I'm I guess you could call me a fatalist, but I just believe life gives you good breaks and bad breaks, and your challenge is to not get too excited on the good breaks and not just uh, too disappointed on the bad breaks. Uh, so at Columbia Law School, I gave, was asked to give the graduation speech. I was an alum, uh, alumni. And, I, and it was late in the day. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there, 50th anniversary. Um, everyone made a big fuss over her properly. Uh, so by the time I came to speak, it would have been a very long day. And I said to the students, okay, I'm going to give you a three-sentence summary of my speech. And I'm going to go on with my speech to your parents and aunts and uncles who got you to this wonderful day. Um, school is fair. Life is not. Just deal with it. Uh, and I believe that from, from the very beginning. So I said, let's assume you're a trial lawyer, because I was a trial lawyer for two or three years before I went to politics. And you go into court and the law and the facts are on your side. You should win. You think you're going to win. But once in a while, you will not win. And don't go. You know, don't despair. Don't pull out your hair because you'll go into court someday when just the opposite is the case. The facts and the law are not on your side uh, and somehow you win. When that happens, do not run around and tell everyone how smart you are. Just say a little prayer. So that's always the way I've been. And to tell you how it works out in life. So I'm running for governor in 1998. I'm in fourth place. We have an open primary. So Dan Lundman the only Republican running against me is running on the same ballot as two Democrats, Al Checky, the former head of Northwest Airlines, and Jane Harmon, a congresswoman from Washington. So Jane and Al Checky get into a dispute over something, and Al Checky decides to go have a, a go on television for five weeks in February. The election is in June. Nobody else is on television, and he starts off with a picture of me, the best picture ever taken of me in my life, and he said. I'm running against two political pros. One is former Lieutenant Governor Gray Davis, and the other is Congressman, Congresswoman Jane Harmon. But what we really need is an independent businessman. And he goes on and on and on. On the strength of his commercial, again, I don't have one dime of television on, nor does Jane Harmon. I went from last to first. Uh, and then I could tell all my supporters to say, well, we like you, Gray, but you have no chance of winning. Uh, so we can't help you to saying, look, I'm in first place and I haven't spent a dime. And that's how uh, good luck can change your fortune because I may not have even made it out of the Democratic primary, uh, much less got elected governor. So that that was- The key to your success being Al Checky, an unknown factor in, uh, in, in, in your meat dark rise. I had great consultants and a great campaign manager, Gary South, but none of those people were smart enough to get Al Checky to do that for me. <laughs> uh, it's a gift from God. Fantastic. But, you know, life gives you an attention. So one thing I learned from my mother, you have two, two ears and one mouth for a reason. I, oh, you should uh, listen more than you talk. I've always tried to be humble and hear people out. Uh, so I didn't, you know, get full of myself when I won that primary. I realized it was an extraordinary break. I was just determined to do as good a job as I could if I got elected. Well, um, we could continue by uh, talking about uh, these war stories and, and, and your past for a very long time. But I think um, 
it might make sense to turn to uh, now, uh, the now portion of our podcast. Um, and from your unique perch, um, I was hoping that you would help us understand what lies behind the current effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom um, and what, what helps us understand the wrath of the voter. Um, there are various factors that are floating about, and we as historians tend to resist single cause explanations of history. Um, there's obviously the French laundry, uh, the maskless French laundry uh, meal. There's the COVID crisis. There's uh, the toxic political culture of which Donald Trump was uh, such a prime symptom. How do you see um, uh, the, the mix of things that led to this current recall effort? Okay, before I answer that, I do want to mention two other things that happened on my watch that I'm proud of. Yeah. Uh, very brief. So we were able to get health care to a million children who didn't have it, which is very important because their parents had to take them to the doctors. That got some of the adults going back to uh, taking their health more seriously. We signed the first bill in America on greenhouse gases, and that's Pavley's AB 1493. That reduced tailpipe emission, which is about 45 to 50% of all the emissions, carbon emissions in California to this day, with all the trucks and the cars, to say nothing of the airplanes and the, and the cruise ships. Um, and Detroit sued us for seven years. By the time it emerged from the courts, I was out of office, but Obama was taking office, and he basically adopted the template of the Pavley Bill. And that became the emission standards nationally. And those are the standards that Trump and, and uh, uh, was fighting to change as he went out of office uh, a couple of years ago. So that was a law that had impact uh, nationally. And finally, uh, an Amber Alert bill that I signed, I mentioned it only because the Highway Patrol, I put in charge, put them in charge of, of uh, implementing this bill. And they came up with using the electronic message boards that are in all the freeways to show the name and the make of the car and the description of the kidnapper. Sometimes it was a parent without parental custody. Sometimes it was a stranger, but it was remarkably successful. Now, what, what's what's different today and what's causing the recall? Well, the pandemic, it was clearly not of Governor Newsom's making, but it's affected everyone on the planet Earth. Uh, if you think about it, there's 184 nations whose economies have suffered, some are on their knees, because of a little virus without firing a shot. Uh, so that left all the governors uh, with a host of problems. They had a host of problems and a host of difficult decisions they had to make to protect public safety and, and protect life. Uh, and Governor Newsom followed the advice of the uh, public health officers. He was the first to basically ask people to stay at home. And obviously, he, in certain cases, Small businesses could not open or only open, say, if they were a restaurant for uh, curbside service. When they did open, maybe 25%, maybe 33%. Well, all those restrictions, uh, uh, some people took as uh, an affront, understandably, if that was their livelihood. The government is telling them they can't do what they love to do. So if I'm only operating at 25% effectiveness, or capacity, I can't hire as many waiters, I can't hire as many chefs, I can't have many busboys. So all of those people suffer and all those people feel badly. I totally understand that. And, and that's what he's dealing with. On the plus side, uh, we have a much better inoculation rate. Inocula the vaccine is, the, is a modern miracle and a great tribute to the public health world, to the research world and to the academic world 
which came up with not one, not two, but three vaccines in less than a year before before uh, COVID uh, and the vaccines uh, by Pfizer, uh, Moderna, and uh, Johnson Johnson. Four years was the record with months. So that uh, you know that is a great gift. Also, um, so having having vaccinations more than any of the state uh, is really important. Uh, and if you look at Texas and Florida, which is the second, third largest state, I mean, they have a positivity rate in the mid 30s. Ours is about 6%. So almost by every yardstick, Californians are safer and, and more have lived uh, as a result of this pandemic than anything else. The good news is he's worked really hard with the schools. We're in our second week of opening the schools. Yes, there'll be some hiccups, but uh, I think everyone, including the children, and most importantly, the children, are, are back in school and feel good about it. Uh, businesses are starting to reopen. A lot of businesses are starting to require you get vaccinated, um, some vaccinated, plus you, or you can take a, a test once or twice a week, but, but a healthy minority of companies, people like Disney, uh, stand out, um, are requiring you to be vaccinated. So as more and more companies get to that position, more and more people will get vaccinated and we'll be able to put the uh, Delta variant uh, uh, in the rearview mirror. My hope is by October or November. But what about the political culture that has created this current recall effort? Um, it, it's it, it really um, uh, seems to be of a different order uh, of of ferocity and and toxicity, uh, even than the political culture that you faced uh, uh, in in the early years of your second term. What do you say about that as a factor? No question about it. Well, I mean, let's face it. Uh, Trump has created the big lie. I mean, if Trump won the election, he'd be president. Come on. And most people, Republican and Democrat, understand that. But some people, you know, real devotees of Trump, believe he won the election. Okay. Well, let's take, uh, you know, sometimes if the election is like a thousand votes or 1,500 votes, I mean, the other day they were complaining about something that went wrong in Michigan. Michigan went for for Biden by 200,000 votes. Come on. Uh, in Georgia, which was like 11 or 12,000 votes for Biden, uh, the Republican uh, Secretary of State and the Republican governor said, look, this was a fair election. Biden win. We didn't want that. We're Republicans. We voted for Trump. But our election was fair. So th- this big lie uh, perpetrated by Trump, because he's you know, not man enough to say, I lost this election uh, and be gracious and go to his successor's uh, inauguration like every other president did before him. Uh, is, you know, is a way to assuage his fragile ego because he can't just accept reality. Uh, the, re- the consequences of that is his base is riled up and those people think he won, think the election was stolen and are determined to change uh, voting laws around the country. And in California, they have a chance to not governor and get a Republican there, which would be a big psychological boost for the Republican Party, not just here in California, but around the country in the midterm elections. We only have a four or five, maybe three vote majority in the House, uh, and they'll be up for election next year. And the Senate is dead even, 50-50. So very, very fragile majority. And and getting a, knocking out a Democratic governor, which I do not believe will happen, and I think Governor Newsom is doing all the right things, and I think he will win, which I'll get to later. But if they were able to do that, that would be a big psychological boost uh, for the Republican Party. So um, 
you know, even in the best of times, it turns out um, there are sometimes flaws or kinks in the mechanism of democracy. Um, in more challenging times, like the ones we inhabit today, um, those uh, seeming defects rise to the surface. And um, many people think that the recall procedure is indeed such a defect um, with uh, the low threshold to uh, of signatures required to uh, uh, begin the recall process, uh, the 50% requirement for the incumbent, uh, plurality for uh, all the others. Um, do you see this as a defect or flaw in, in the democratic order? Again, I want to start with this premise. When you run for governor, you accept the rules of the road. And I've never complained about my outcome. Uh, and Governor Newsom hasn't complained about having to uh, deal with what is a double standard because the governor is held to a higher standard under the recall than the people running to succeed him. If question number one on the ballot, which is should Gavin Newsom be recalled, and we're urging everyone to vote no on that. Um, question number two then, as like 44 candidates, in my case, 134 candidates, each one telling their, their supporters to vote, no, to vote yes on the recall, by the way, um, you don't have to get 50%. As a matter of fact, I got 45%. Arnold only got 49%, uh, so he didn't get 50%, but he didn't have to get 50% because he was on the second question. So the change that I think makes the most sense in the future, after Gavin Newsom beats back this recall, is just have one issue on the ballot. Everybody who wants to run for governor and the governor get to run uh, in the election. Right now, the governor has his own uh, election, has to get 50% of the vote. He cannot participate, he or she cannot participate in question number two. Get rid of question number one, just have one thing on the ballot, and whoever gets the most votes uh, completes the term of the governor. And then, of course, the term of the governor uh, there's another election uh, for the next four years. By the way, what do you suggest to like-minded people uh, that they do on question two? I haven't, I haven't figured that out myself, uh, but I know this. If you do the right thing and vote no on question number one, uh, Governor Newsom will complete his term. Uh, this election is like a shotgun marriage, just this recall election. I mean, if you walked around Westwood today you'd be hard pressed to find more than two or three people that even know there's an election on September 14th, much less understand its consequential nature. Because if, if Governor Newsom does not win, and again, I believe he will, and I believe he'll win by five or six points, um, that will reverse policies on vaccinations, on lowering masks. Uh, Larry Elder, the uh, apparent front runner amongst the Republicans. He says, on day one, I'm getting rid of the vaccine, vaccine mandate. I'm getting rid of the mask mandate. And we want to, don't want to do that. We're in the, you know, in football parlance, we're in the middle of the fourth quarter here uh, in this battle against COVID. And we got to win this battle. We don't want to take masks off and take vaccines off and start all over again because this Delta variant is serious and we need to beat it back. Uh, so there's a host of other reasons, host of other policy considerations, far more conservative than Gavin Newsom. That's not where California is. For all those reasons, people should take this election seriously. But step number one is to let them know there is an election. And if you don't take it seriously, all your good work in electing Gavin Newsom could go out the window and we could have someone with 180 degrees on politics from Gavin uh, leading the state in absolutely the wrong direction. 
right? Just to reiterate that Governor Newsom needs to earn at least 50% of the vote to avoid the recall. Right. Thereby, my recommendation going forward that we just have one election. Everyone gets to run, including Gavin Newsom. Whoever wins finishes out the term. You know, though, in in a world as polarized as ours, where um, fake news reigns and uh, losing candidates fail to acknowledge that they lost, one worries that this is just going to become a regular part of our lives. Elections will be relitigated as were every year. Um, someone elected to a four-year term will face a recall, you know, year after year after year. Um, do you worry about that? I, I do worry about that because I, I know that uh, recalls can be disruptive. Um, we spend most of my time during the recall uh, focusing on the job. We had a number of surrogates. Diane Feinstein was um, in 2003 was at the height of her powers. She got the assault weapon ban passed uh, uh, the next year in Congress, in the Senate, uh, was a surrogate and very positive. Barbara Boxer helped. Lots of other people did commercials for me. And even though I was polling in the 20% range, I got 45% of the vote. Um, and again, without Arnold, I think, uh, I think we would have uh, won the one question number one and that would, and that question two didn't matter. So um, do what you want on question number two. Uh, I, your choices are pretty bleak. Uh, and what really matters is, can you take an action that allows the person you voted for three and a half years ago to stay in office, to finish the job you asked him to do? And the answer is yes, if you vote no on question number one. So as we move towards uh, the end of our conversation, I, I want to take a step back and ask you if you, could, if you can help us understand California progressive, blue, anchor of the left coast, but also libertarian, rural, conservative. It has yielded the Larry Elder phenomenon. And there may be no more graphic illustration of the contradictions of the state than the fact that Donald Trump won the largest number of votes in California, um, more than any other state. And of course, Joe Biden earned more votes in the state than uh, in any other state. Um, which attests to the size of California, but also to very substantial pockets of, uh, of differing electors. Help us understand the state to which you've devoted so much of your time. Um, is it much changed uh, since you were first elected? And what does it look like to you? Uh, well, I love this state. I think it's, it's a state where all things are possible. Uh, we're open Minded, we don't care whether you went to college or not, where you were born, uh, as long as you can come here and make a contribution to our economy, our culture, um, we welcome you. And that's why people have gravitated here from India, from Asia, from all over the world uh, to be part of our uh, economy and to contribute uh, to our, our lifestyle here. So to me, we're largely libertarian, meaning if you leave me alone, I don't really care what you do, but when you, what you do affects me, then I have a problem. So normally, if people didn't want to get a vaccine, you say, so what? But if they don't want to get a vaccine now, the reality is that someone they love, their children, their grandchildren, their nieces and nephews, will come into contact with them and will catch COVID. And I'm sure they don't want that to happen, but that will happen. 
So uh, we are libertarian and uh, people who voted for Biden and people who voted uh, for Democrats down up, up and down the line, but maybe live in the Pacific Palisades or maybe live in Santa Monica and you tell them that they're going to have four households on their single family lot, they may not support that uh, because that's affecting them. So you have to keep that in mind when you're governor of California. And again, I lived in a very different world. 16 years of Republican governors preceding me, 16 years is a long time. Um, and, and, an, and an electorate, which was more, much more closely divided between Republicans, Republicans and Democrats. But I think the lesson is uh, we should take heart. America eventually uh, gets it right. And Winston Churchill once said, um, America always does the right thing after it's exhausted every other possibility. So that's what we're doing now, exhausting a lot of other possibilities before we get it right. And just in line with that optimistic note, um, I'm wondering if you're willing to uh, uh, essay your own uh, prognostication. Um, how do you see things trending in this election? Well, assuming I see them getting slightly better for Gavin Newsom as we speak, but we have two weeks uh, and during that time, I expect we'll have some participation by President Biden and Kamala Harris, which is important because it reminds people that our, our two high, most highly elected national leaders, which by, by, they certainly have their hands full on a zillion other issues, are going to take time to participate, hopefully in person, but certainly electronically in this election because they think it's so important that Gavin Newsom be allowed to finish his term. Uh, plus, he has, uh, as I said before, $80 million, uh, $80 billion, $80 billion, the largest surplus in the history of any state in the United States of America, to help amend uh, some of the injustices during the um, COVID lockdown, helping small business getting up and running again, not at 30% or 50%, but at 100%, uh, helping people get back to work, paying the rent of everyone who had to forego their rent starting from last uh, April, at least through the end of September, possibly through the end of the year. So a lot of money's out there, some state, some federal, to make things better for the people who feel aggrieved. And I understand feeling that way. If I was in their shoes, I would feel the same way. But hopefully getting a second start with this money will give them a chance to feel better about themselves and their future. And maybe just a final question to bring it back to you, Governor Davis. Um, what do you take away from your own experience in 2003? You know, there, um, there, I could say a lot of things, but I'll say two things. You know, in everyone's life, there's some rain is going to fall. There'll be some good times and you should enjoy them and celebrate them. But again, not to, don't get too full of yourself. Don't think you're the greatest thing that ever walked because uh, there'll be times when uh, events will, will prove uh, to the contrary. Um, when I left office, I told Sharon on the flight back to LA, my wife, Sharon, who's uh, been married 38 years now, she's just a tremendous human being. Uh, I said, okay, th this chapter in our life is over and we're going to uh, continue to help people, but not through elective office. And we've done that through, through joining uh, various hospital boards and uh, working with Governor Newsom and the other governors uh, during the COVID experience. Um, and uh, on something called the Southern California Leadership Council, uh, which is largely a business group, but we have uh, 
Kaiser and Cedar Sinai and other medical personnel involved there. Um, my wife, on the other hand, tells people if she had known her life would be so good after the recall, she would have campaigned for it herself. So I'm more philosophical about it. She just is enjoying a life, and uh, um, we're trying to take a little, take some vacations now and then. I'm still working at Loeb and Loeb as of counsel, and I enjoy that work very much. So I had my time. We made a number of contributions, some of which still last to this very day. Um, but I do think going forward, we have every right to come up with some changes to the recall, which was written 111 years ago and has not really been changed in any fundamental way since then. Uh, so it more it squares more with the modern life. I mean, there was no social media, no internet, and getting the number of signatures necessary in 1911 was a humongous operation compared to what the social media and the internet permits you to do now. But again, the most important change is not so much in how many signatures you have to gather, but just have one election where the standard for the winner is the same for everybody. Whoever gets the most votes gets to uh, complete the governor's term. If we get that done, it will go before the voters and I think they will they will adopt it. I know there's some other ideas uh, out there which may or may not pass muster with the voters, but because this is, would be a constitutional amendment, this change, it requires uh, a public vote. Uh, and I think telling them they have an election, but now we'll have everyone on the same ballot, the, most people will see that as a plus, not a minus, and it will put everyone on a level playing ground, and then people will accept the result then, because you won't have a situation, and this will happen someday, I guarantee you, unless we make this change, where the governor will get like 49% of the vote and the winner of uh, question number two will get like 38% of the vote and uh, he or she who won question number two will become the governor, even though they got less votes on the very same ballot than the governor. And that, I know uh, Dean uh, Chemerinsky at Berkeley and others believe that's unconstitutional, violates the... the uh, one person, one vote rule. I know for sure it's unfair. Uh, so I think making that change would uh, even up the scales and give everyone the same chance uh, on the ballot if there's a recall in the future, which I don't wish on my worst enemy. But if there is, at least everyone will have a fair shot. Well, thank you, uh, Governor Davis, for what has been a most illuminating conversation that really sheds light on uh, what is oftentimes a very obscure process, but which now has been thrust into the public spotlight once again, as it was in 2003. You offer uh, a unique perspective on it, and we thank you for making time out of your busy schedule to be with us. My pleasure. Good to be with you, David. Good to be with you, Maya. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.